I'm being discreet here, far from pretty, okay? Far from it. And St. Peter walked up to him and I said, I told you not to hit a duck. And he took a pair of uh, cufflinks and he, 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 he linked this man with this woman. He said, uh, that's the way it's going to be for eternity. Off you go. So the other two guys are standing there sort of in shock and thinking, oh my goodness, we've got to be really careful. We've got to be really careful. So they played and, and they kind of committed to the, each other that they would be really, really careful and they wouldn't hit a duck. And that went pretty well. You know, a week went by, two weeks, about a month, but about the sixth week, one of the guys hit a duck. And it happened again. They saw St. Peter coming toward him with a less than attractive woman on his arm. And Peter came up and I told you, you know, you can't hit a duck in heaven. And he handcuffed the two together and off they went for eternity. Well, the third guy now is on his own, but he still loves golf and he's not willing to give it up. But he, de he determines, I am not going to hit a duck. This is a big deal. So um, he played for a month. Everything went well. Two months, three months, six months went by, but then he hit a duck. And he saw in the distance St. Peter coming toward him, but the closer he got, he realized that the woman on St. Peter's arm was absolutely beautiful. And Peter came along, and he handcuffed the two together. And the man was just thrilled about what was going on. He says, I don't know what I've done to deserve this. And she looked at him as this and said, I don't know what uh, you did, but I hit a duck. <laughs> And today we're going to talk about the dynamic, the dynamic of judging people by their outward appearance. And we're going to be incredibly thankful that that's not, not how God judges us. It's not how God judges us. You know, the fact is that, as the text says, God, when he looks at a person, does not look about at the outward physical reality of who we are. He looks at our hearts. Chapter 11, we're uh, jumping into today, follows chapter 10. Brilliant statement of the sermon, I know. But that chapter is primarily about King Saul. When he was anointed by Samuel, the prophet of God, it says that he was a tall and handsome, good-looking man. He, he looked fantastic from the outside, but his reign didn't go well. If you were here last week, we learned he was greedy and he was arrogant, and he dishonored God rather than bringing glory to God. Um, and one day... Samuel came to him after one of his mistakes and said this. It's on page 142 of your storybook if you've got it, and it's 1 Samuel 13, verse 13 and following. Samuel speaking, You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command of the Lord, uh, the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. And essentially what happens after this is that Samuel is charged to go find that man, that man who had a heart after God, who had a passion for God and for God's glory. And he was, he was if you would, challenged and charged with to go and anoint that man. And chapter 11 begins... <clears throat> with this experience of Samuel, and I'm going to read it to you, and it, it begins the story of an incredible young guy. This is page 145, 1 Samuel 16, verse 4, if you're reading along that way. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. 
When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. Good looking guy. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shema pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to, them, to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully on David, the one who would become the king of Israel after Saul. Now, if you're in our small groups and you're studying these things week by week, you will know that the word that Jesse used when he said, you know, there is the youngest who's out tending the sheep, that word in Hebrew little, literally means runt. He's the runt of the family. Uh, essentially, what, what Jesse was saying to Samuel was, like, there's no way you're going to want that guy to be anointed as the future king of Israel. But you see, God didn't look to see and didn't see what Jesse saw in David. God saw into David's heart. He saw into David's heart and he knew that here is a young guy, very young teenager, a young guy of integrity, a young guy of courage. I'm going to read to you Psalm 78, verses 70 to 72 uh, that describes this one named David. He chose David, God chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheep's sheep pens, from tending the sheep, he brought him to be the shepherd of his people, Jacob of Israel, his inheritance. And David shepherded them with integrity of heart, with skillful hands, he led them. You see, here is the prime example of what God does as he's moving forward, as he's calling people to himself. The story goes on and, 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 and it talks about how when David is tending sheep, he would, he would um, at times have a lion or a bear attack the flock. Now, I don't know what you would do if you had been David and you were tending sheep and a lion attacked the flock or a bear attacked the flock and captured one of the little sheep and dragged them off. I'd be saying, have a nice meal. Here's the salt and pepper, you know? Like, I mean, I would not be chasing after a lion, would you? Think about it. But David would. He, he had this, this, this determination with him. He had this character. And he would chase after the lion or chase after the bear, and he would club it to death, we're told. And he would save the sheep. It was that important for him. And here's the deal. God knew that David would shepherd his people the same way that he shepherded the sheep. You know, God knew what was in this young guy's heart. I want to tell you that in this chapter of the story, there are, there are four people who dramatically underestimate this young guy named David. The first, of course, is his dad, Jesse. You know, when, when Samuel asked him to present his sons, Jesse didn't even consider the possibility that David be the, would be the future king of Israel. It didn't even cross his mind. Not the runt. 
Second person was his older brother. It's in the story of the David and Goliath encounter. The Philistines have attacked Israel. They're the enemy. They're on God's land, and their brothers were in the army, and, and they're ready to fight, but of course, no one has the courage to fight Goliath. Jesse, the dad, sends David, the shepherd, to see if the brothers are okay. I'm going to read to you verse, uh, from page 147, and that is in 1 Samuel 17, 33 and following. It says this, early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of, uh, of every shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle position, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, the gifts that Jesse had sent along, ran to the battle lines and asked his brothers how they were. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. Now the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He, keeps, he comes out to defy Israel. The kings will give great wealth. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? They repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, this is what will be done for the man who kills him. Then Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the man. He burned with anger at him. Why have you come down here and with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know, listen to this, how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You come down only to watch the battle. You know, we have, we have got to read this and we have got to understand that, that there's a comment here again about the heart of David. It is the focus. And we have got to understand that his brother gets it so, so wrong. He's so far off. You know, in the heart of David was, was defiance against the defiant one. There was incredible courage. There was a great desire for the glory of God burning in him. But his brother couldn't see it. Third is King Saul himself. David uh, is, is, is speaking about how he would go out to fight the giant, and the king hears of this. And uh, there's this interaction, page 148. In, uh, in, in your story version. Uh, Samuel 17, 34. Um, David said to Saul the king, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man. It's almost literally a young kid. You're just a boy. And he has been a warrior from his youth, this seasoned, huge warrior. But David said to Saul, and here's the story of the, the, the lions and so forth, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who, who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. This guy's not much older than 16 years of age. Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. 
You know, a remarkable, remarkable uh, recognition again about how some people look at the outward appearance and just get it wrong. The, the king did this. You, there's no way, it's not a possibility that you can defeat Goliath. And we see this direct comparison in the passage between all the soldiers of the army of Israel who fled from Goliath's taunts, the brothers who were part of that army, and even the king himself who chooses to not fight Goliath. What a contrast. And the fourth uh, person who deeply and dramatically um, underestimates David is Goliath himself. Let me read to you the story. 149 in uh, the storybook for Samuel 17, verse 40. Then he, David, took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with a sling, his sling in his hand approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield-bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, am, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. How would any of us respond in that instance? The, the, the schoolyard bully is coming our way, and he's twice my height, you know? David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. Glory to God. All these gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. You see the heart of this young guy? You see the passion that he has for God? You see this sense of courage and conviction? And, and, and he is just determined that God would be known and that the things of God would be seen. Four people had no clue about who David, who David really was. There was one young person who saw the reality of David's heart, and that's Jonathan. Jonathan was, was King Saul's son. He was the one who was the prince. He was the one who would normally become the king after Saul was gone. But one day after David and Jonathan had become great friends, he gave David his robe and his tunic and all his weaponry, all to symbolize, to signify that he knew David would become the next king and not he himself. It took 14, 15 more years, but eventually David was crowned king of Israel. What do we see here? Well, I think it's a profound reality to step back and recognize that the upper story just carries on. That story that God is, it, it has put in motion since the day Adam and Eve sinned and continues to this day to carry along. God is intent about accomplishing his will, about getting us back to him and seeing this world renewed to become what it once was. And I hope you understand as we go through the stories, this upper story is not going to cease. It's not going to stop until it's accomplished in spite of our failings, in spite of our foibles, in spite of us tripping over ourselves as human beings who are stuck with this thing at least then, but, which is called the sinful nature and by the power of sin today. 
You know, we don't always get it right, as was, the evidence, was, as was evidenced last Sunday, but the upper story of God carries on. And what we see here primarily is that David ultimately becomes king. David is the ancestor of Jesus. Jesus is born in the line of David, as the Christmas story tells us. God is accomplishing his purposes. More than that, David is a picture of Jesus. I don't know if you've noticed it or thought about it with a lot of the other biblical characters that we've described. I haven't taken time to do that. But we see Jesus in these characters. Think about it. Both David and Jesus come from Bethlehem. Both are from the tribe of J David. Both are, the, are, are anointed by God to rule. David was the Messiah in his day for his generation. You realize that? And Jesus would be the anointed one of God who would be the Messiah for the whole world. And of course, Jesus, too, was underestimated. You know, Mary and Joseph were uneducated, um, shamed young people with no social standing. They were poor. Jesus was born in a manger, something that we sentimentalize. But my goodness, can you imagine your children being born in a barn surrounded by livestock? It's not a very glorious way to begin. Jesus came from Nazareth, out of which some people said nothing good can come. He had no power according to the vision of those in his world. My friends, how could anybody have predicted what would come from the life of this child who was born in Bethlehem that night? How could anybody have thought or dreamed or anticipated what the person of Jesus Christ would do in this world over centuries and now millennia? I want to tell you too, the reality is that when God looked at Jesus, he didn't look at the outward appearance of the man, his son. He looked at his heart. And he saw one whose heart beat for the glory of God and who had integrity and who had incredible courage to the point of being willing to give his life that you and I could have relationship again with God through faith in him. That's the upper story dynamic and God just keeps moving it forward, just keeps it going. What can we learn for our lower story from their lower story in the day of David and Saul and Jonathan and so forth? Well, number one, it is so, so incredibly important that we do not underestimate people in our lives. That we don't do that. That, that we don't underestimate the potential that other people have to do great things for God. I've, I've thought about a great example, and God just kind of gave this example to me uh, last Sunday night. And I'm going to tell you some, some stories from that. But last Sunday night, my dad, who's right here, 92 years old, had his 92nd birthday party in our home, and our family gathered together. And uh, <clears throat> I don't know if you're going to be clapping in a minute. And, and, and it so happens that dad had uh, the opportunity to share a lot of stories from his childhood, and I want to share some of them for you because this guy was a little terror. <laughs> I'd say holy terror, but somehow those words don't really go together in my mind. He told us about the day he was on a golf course stealing balls. And the groundskeeper noticed him and he, he started to run, I suppose, with balls in his pockets or whatever. And he jumped the fence and the fence was one of those sort of picket fences and his mom had just knitted him a full body suit, uh, woolen of uh, like kind of underwear, I think. Right, Dad? And this wool got caught on the top of the fence, and his dad ran home. This, literally, it was one of those stories where the string just kept going and going and going, and when he got home, there wasn't much underneath, if you know what I'm talking about. And I don't think he was that popular when he arrived home. Another story is um, 
is when they were, uh, he and his, his little cousin, they were, I guess, two little terrors, discovered that, uh, th that there was a speaker coming to the church for a children's event. I guess that's how they did it in that day. And uh, they really weren't very fond of uh, the speaker. Um, and um, they decided to go to a store. I don't know what kind of store sells this, but to get itchy powder. And so they, they, they got this, and they went, uh, and, and they sat behind the speaker. Can you remember his name, Dad? Hasn't hit you yet? But they sat behind the speaker uh, while this, you know, the service was whatever was ongoing and prior to this man being called to the front to speak. And uh, not long before he was invited up to speak, they poured this itchy powder down the back of his shirt. And so, so this man got up to speak, and he began to, to twitch and, and, and to act like this. And the more he moved, the itchier it became. And after a little while, he just said to say, listen, I'm really thankful that I've been invited to speak here, but I've just remembered another engagement that I must attend, and I'm sorry I have to go. And he ran out the door. <laughs> they got rid of the speaker they didn't like. No ideas here for you people. Like, just... <laughs> oh, dear. Um... There's another story, and I'm going to say this with discretion. Uh, the two of these young, they're about eight to ten years old in all the, most of these stories, and, and they were in a choir at the church. And uh, they were taught to sing a song called They Comfort Me, obviously, talking about God and his action in our lives, I suppose. And they developed this idea that, and I'm going to get you to use your spell spelling capacity here rather than me speaking <laughs> in a way that may be considered inappropriate in church. But what they decided to do was when they, whenever they sang the word comfort, they would replace the second O in the word and take out the O and put in an A. And these two young boys, have you gotten it? These two young boys would sing at the top of their lungs with great emphasis on the second syllable. They comfort me. <laughs> Until what was discovered, until it was discovered, and of course they were given a, a significant reprimand. And the last story I'll tell you is of the day uh, my dad was kicked out of school for the last time at 14 years of age. Apparently he said something untoward that the teacher heard, and Mr. Cuddy called him to the front and said something to this effect. Uh, Robert, this is not the place for you. Gather your things and go home and don't come back. <laughs> so dad, uh, that was the end of his academic career to that point in his life. And he went to, the, to work in the shipyards of Belfast. Listen, until someone saw potential in him. And they gave him a job in the offices of, of that shipbuilding company. And a couple of years later, he was converted. He was born again, came to faith in Jesus received a call from God, he sensed into ministry, um, spent the next years of his life working all day long and getting a tutor at night to, to develop and to achieve university entrance, went to the University of Edinburgh in Scotland, um, and became a pastor and blessed the lives of many, many people. Literally, because he's an evangelist at heart, hundreds of people have come to Christ through his ministry. He traveled all across the country in the 70s as an evangelist in our denomination. My friends, we can never look at anybody and underestimate what God might do in their lives. Can't do it. You know, I've just told you a story about young Robert Little and I've talked about a young David. I want to talk to you parents today. 
and about your children. Never, ever underestimate what God might do through them in their lives. See the potential that they have and speak that potential into their lives. Tell them that God can use them in a powerful way. Call the best out of them. Enable them to believe that they can do something great and significant for God. And sit back and watch what God does with that. So number one, we cannot underestimate people, even when it appears as if things aren't likely to go well. Second lesson, very possible that the person that we are most likely to underestimate is ourselves. Ourselves. You know, in the last couple of years, I've approached two women, and I have talked to them about my understanding of their giftedness and my understanding of their potential for possible ministry in our church. And both of them responded in exactly the same way, I think, although it's been a while uh, for the, from the first one, but I think that their words were actually the same. Their response is, I couldn't do that. I couldn't do that. But because someone played the role of Jonathan in their lives, they are now both serving God and they are making an impact for God's kingdom in and through the ministry of this church. I want to read to you Ephesians 2, verse 10. says this, For we, and that's talking about those of us who are His, who have been born again by the Spirit of God, who have entered into relationship with God through faith in Jesus, we are God's handiwork. The word means craftsmanship. We have been carefully formed by God, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And I want to stand here based on the authority of the Word of God because scriptures are our authority in this church. And I'm here to tell you that you can make a significant impact for Christ in and through your life if you're His. And I'm here to say, please never, ever, ever underestimate that reality. You see, underestimating ourselves keeps us from doing what David did when he ran to the battle when everyone else was running away. God has gifted you. God has given you his spirit. God will use you to do great things for him if only you will yield your life to him and respond to the call of God in your life. And through you, the upper story reality will become more of a reality in this world. And I want to speak to young people here today. Remember, when David was anointed king, he was 16 years of age. He was really young. And I want you to think, young people, about the life that is ahead of you, and I want you to realize that the Lord Jesus could do great things through you. If only you would submit your life fully and completely to him. If only you would say, Lord Jesus, use my life. Use my life for your glory and to bring your kingdom. You know, the, the great revivals of Christian history, times when God's Spirit has moved in a, in a particular time, in a particular place, in a profound way, when people are converted in huge numbers and when people fall on their knees in repentance and they turn to the Lord Jesus in faith, which we desperately need once again in our country. The great revivals of history are normally, nearly always, begun by teenagers. I don't know why that is. <laughs> 
But somehow God gives teenagers the capacity to sit back and say, now is the time we need to ask God to do something powerful and mighty in our generation again to draw people back to himself. So teenagers, I challenge you. Understand your potential in Christ. Know that God can use you in a dramatic way. Let's, all of us, never underestimate what God will do if we offer ourselves to him. Third lesson, and the last. I want us all to think about our hearts today. question I've asked myself as I've reflected on this young man, David, um, and I've thought about the integrity in his heart and the courage in his heart and his, the passion in his heart to glorify God. I've asked myself the question, how did he get such a heart? How'd that happen? I think the answer is really very obvious. That heart was the way it was because God made it that way. He made it that way. You know, and I think about us, and and I think about some of the the people in our congregation, and I haven't warned anybody about this, but I don't think they'll mind, but I think about about our staff. We've got an incredible staff, you know that? And I think about Brennan, and that man's heart to see young people encounter Christ and come to believe in him and to grow in him. It's a passion. And I think about Erin. Every Sunday she gets up here and she works so hard through the week to make this happen. And her heart's desire is that you will encounter God here. Not that you'll be entertained, and not that you will like the songs or like what I might say, but that you will encounter God here and that you will be changed by the living God and that as a result, as we move forward, this place will be filled with people who can hear about the message of Jesus. That's her heart's desire, right? I hit the nail on the head. Did well. I think about Joyce. Uh, Joyce does a lot of things, but one of the things that she does is work in our downtown ministry. She and others have helped create that. And it is a passion in her heart that the people who essentially are on the streets in downtown Woodstock, who are broken and wounded and needy people, it is her passionate desire that they come into a relationship with Christ and that their lives are transformed. Why? Because of the hope that Jesus brings, the action that Jesus brings, the healing that Jesus brings into a human life. It's her deep, deep desire. And I think of Donna. I can't mention all of our staff, but she's in charge of all the welcome teams that you encounter when you're here and and, and all the decorating and all those sorts of things. She longs for people to walk into this place and before anybody says a word about the love of God, that people encounter it. It's in her heart. And I think about Rick, our, our executive pastor. And quite frankly, I don't have a clue what's in his heart. No, I'm kidding you. (laughs) You know, that guy, I don't see Rick today. Where's Rick? Oh, there he is back there. Just kidding, Rick. Just kidding. He's got a passion that this church grow and that this church uh, be led by a staff that, that, that is passionate for God and that is functioning with excellence. Talk to him about it if you want. He'll tell you. I could go on beyond our staff. I think about Heather, my wife. Didn't warn you, did I, Heather? But Heather leads the healing care ministry in our church, and for two years, she, along with others, have been developing a team of leaders, and we're kind of 
going live this January with, with three groups in our church for people who would like to participate. And she is a very busy person, but she pours hour after hour after hour of work into this ministry because she knows in her heart of hearts how this ministry allows people who are struggling with life and, and with addictions and with brokenness and just can't get life right. She knows how this ministry can bring the deep healing of the Spirit of God into lives and so that people are changed. It's in her heart. I think of David Vanderspeck and Bill and Nancy Chesney and others who've gone to Nicaragua apart from this year like 21 years in a row because they love those people. It's in their heart to love them and to care for them and to see that country grow and develop. And, you know, Fred uh, uh, Hagel and, and the new Oasis Ministries to seniors, we can't slow the man down. He is so passionate about this. And I think of Jeff Roger and, and other guys, Jeff beginning impact because God so took hold of his life and blessed his life and transformed his life. He just wanted the same for the, for the men in this church and it's happening now. And I think of the team now that runs Sisterhood, our women's ministry, and their desire that exactly the same thing happened for the women of our church. And I could go on and on and on and on. And I want to tell you in all of these people, God does not look at their outward appearance. He looks at their hearts. And he uses them because they are passionate for God's glory and they are eager to see the upper story become a reality. You know, one of the thoughts that struck me uh, in this dynamic is, I wonder how many people that I'm going to be speaking to love what I might say, but when they look at themselves, they don't see so much the heart of King David, they see more the heart of Saul. I don't know. I would imagine at least one person in here might think that. So I want to just speak really brief briefly to it. It is God by his spirit who makes our hearts new. It is God by his spirit who creates in us this desire. He reveals himself to us. He opens our eyes to see his majesty and his beauty and his holiness. And we're called into repentance. And as we repent of our sin, he comes into our lives and he changes our hearts and he creates our hearts. He changes our hearts so that we, having encountered the reality of the living God, we come to a place, and it takes time and maturity, I know, but we come to a place where all we care about, our deepest desire, our heart's desire, is to bring glory to that God, to live for him and see his will done in this world. I want to read Psalm 139, 23 and 24. It says, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Listen to this. And see if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I just want to offer the possibility to anyone here today who's recognizing the need to have their heart made new. You can come into the presence of the living God here this morning and you can say, Lord Jesus, that's the heart I want. And I know sometimes, you know, I've been more drawn to the things of the world, and we talked about that last week, than the things of God. But I want, I want with all of my heart to know your reality, your powerful transformative reality in me, so that my life too can be used in remarkable ways, so that the upper story might take another step, because what I do and I want to say to those of you who might find yourself in a place where you just know God is speaking to you right now, 
Um, just turn to the Lord and say, search me, O God, and know my heart. Search me. Cleanse me. Heal me. Restore my heart. Make my heart new. And I want to tell you in that moment, God will work and you will be changed. And you will get caught up into something that's gone on for thousands of years and that will carry on until the day Jesus Christ returns to this earth and you will be used in a significant and in a mighty way. I'm saying that based on the word of God, not just my opinion, to accomplish something of great significance for the glory of God. We're entering into the, well, we're in the Advent season and we're coming close to Christmas. And one of the questions I'm asking this Advent season is, why did Jesus come? There are a lot of answers, and you're going to hear of, of them over these next weeks as we start that focus, uh, the Advent Christmas focus next Sunday, really. But you know one of the reasons Jesus came into this world and why Jesus died on a cross, why Jesus was raised to new life, so that he could change your heart. And I know if I were to ask people in this room today, there would be dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of people who could stand here and say, God has made my heart new. He has changed me. So as we have done over the last few weeks, I'm just going to take a few minutes, a minute or so in silence so that you can pray today. Um, let me say this. If you have underestimated people, I hope you're sensing a call to become a Jonathan to them and that you can speak into their lives the reality that I've described to you today. Tell people, especially the people you love, how much God can accomplish in them. If you've underestimated yourself, can you do some business with God? And offer yourself. Be willing to take the risky steps that are necessary, courageous steps that are necessary that your life might be caught up in the upper story dynamic. If you're someone here today who recognizes my heart isn't quite what it ought to be, but you're ready to ask God to make it new, do so. If you've never invited Christ into your life, just confess your sin to him. Say, Lord, today I get it. I sense you speaking to me. I pray you'll forgive my sin and I pray that you'll come into my life and I pray that you will change this heart so that I might be yours and so that I might make a difference in this life for you. Let's pray. today we praise you that you have the power to create a heart which is passionate for your glory, which is filled with love for people, which is courageous when it needs to be and, and has integrity 
Lord, you have the power to remake lives so that we become people who can make a difference for you, people that you will use to bring the upper story into reality. I just thank you for these people gathered before you. I thank you they've taken the time this morning to enter into your presence, to worship you, but also to hear from you. And in the hearing, Lord, lay down their lives before you, that you might do in and through their lives what you have created them to do before the creation of the world. I pray, Lord Jesus, for every single person here that they will know you, that they will love you, that they will repent of their sin and be in relationship with you. And I pray for every single person here, Lord, that they will discover that integrity of heart and that passion for the kingdom, that they might live for you first and foremost in everything they do. Holy Spirit, come in a powerful movement. Create in us the heart that you desire to create, that we might be the people you desire us to be. Thank you for this morning, Lord. Thank you for the power of your word, for the ministry of your spirit, for the goodness of God. In Jesus' name we